Bibles to John's Gospel. Very excited this morning to begin a new series. It is the session's desire here at Trinity to give you a steady diet of God's Word that is well-rounded, that comes from all the different genres and authors. And in looking at uh, what has been preached by me, by Sean, in the past several years here, uh, it's high time that we do a gospel together, that we study the life and the ministry, the person and the work of Christ, our Savior. And we're going to do John because it's my favorite. It's the fourth gospel, and it is so very different, as you know, if you have read the Scriptures, so very different from the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John handles fewer accounts from Jesus' life and ministry, and he goes into greater detail and depth with them. And the beginning of John's gospel certainly sets it apart from the others. Matthew begins his with a wonderful genealogy before the account of Jesus' birth. Luke begins with the accounts that foretell the births of both John the Baptist and Jesus before he gets to the birth narrative. And Mark dispenses with all that and just jumps right into the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry uh, as an adult. But John does something altogether different. This, This prologue, these beginning verses of John's gospel that we begin to look at today has a bit of a, what I think is a cosmic feel to it. It goes back much further in time than just genealogies. It's lofty. It's transcendent. And yet, as we get deeper into this gospel, we're also going to find from its author, the Apostle John, a a wonderfully personal and even intimate account. John will have all these little autobiographical details sprinkled in how he refers to himself as the disciple Jesus loved, how he mentions little things like he outran Peter to the tomb on the morning of the resurrection. So this gospel shows both the transcendent majesty of Jesus and also this warm personal side that's evidenced by John's own personal relationship with the Lord Jesus. Now, before we dive into the text... I want to share with you one amazement and one frustration. First, I am amazed, again, at how God orchestrates the little things. I mentioned to you last week, even in the middle of the liturgy last week, how I was just struck by how all the songs and the prayers and the scriptures just were woven together with that sermon text from last week. And I didn't plan that. I'd like to say that I did, but I didn't. It's just how the Lord orchestrated all that. I realized again this week how He's done it. How He's done it even with the ending of the last sermon series, us being in Psalm 19, and how He's done it with the beginning of this gospel, right? And I'd love to say, oh yes, I thought about how this would just fit wonderfully together. Oh, I'm not that smart, but God is that we would finish that last sermon series with finding God in the middle of His world and His Word there in Psalm 19. 
And that we would begin this Gospel with such a wonderful declaration about Christ being the Word and seeing His his role in creating the very world that those first verses of Psalm 19 talk about. Now, is that earth-shattering? No. But I'm still amazed at how He puts all the pieces together because I very often feel like I'm just bumbling along. (laughs) But then the Lord leaves His fingerprints all over the place to piece something like this together. And so when we see those fingerprints, it's never a bad idea to point them out and to praise Him for it. So that's the amazement. Now the frustration. Okay? Uh, yesterday I was at church working on said sermon, Sunday school lesson, all that stuff. Shay texts, hey, how's it going? I text back, my head's about to explode. She texts back, have you taken anything? No, 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 not that kind of explode. It's from this passage that I've been studying, right? The, the, the further I got into the week with these first few verses of John's gospel, the more that I chewed on these verses, my mind was very often boggled, <laughs> but my heart was flooded with praise and wonder and gratitude, and the Spirit began to impress upon my heart these amazing truths. More than once this week, I found myself driving down the road, searching frantically for a scrap of paper or a receipt or something to jot something down so I wouldn't forget it that the Spirit had just impressed upon my heart from these verses. And the frustration in that is I know that I can't possibly adequately transfer all of that to you. We don't have the time, first of all, but I don't have the words either to communicate that to you, and that's frustrating to me. But then I remembered, as if the Spirit impressed it upon my heart, that that's not my job anyway. That's His job. And so my frustration eased a bit, and in its place came both a prayer and an exhortation, the prayer to the Holy Spirit that He would do just that for you with these verses. And the exhortation is for you is to take these verses. Take these five verses and chew on them all week long. Pour over them. Read them. Pray them. Memorize them. Put them in the heart's slow cooker and let them simmer all week long until the Spirit does something wonderful with them. And I don't mean that He's got to do something new and mystical and, oh, show you this wonderful off-the-wall insight that no one else is going to come up with. That's not what I'm talking about at all. I'm just talking about that the Spirit would take these deep, elemental, foundational truths about who Jesus is, so simple, in fact, that you might look at them and yawn. You might look at them and say, I've read this. I know this. What's the big deal? But my prayer to the Spirit, my exhortation to you, is that by meditating on them this week, 
he would do something amazing in you, pressing them deep down into your hearts. Now, let's read them. Stand if you're able. The first five verses of John's Gospel, the very Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. May God take his word, inspired by the Holy Spirit, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative for all of our living. May he bless it. May he use it richly. Let's pray. Oh, Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you remove the shackles of familiarity that would keep our hearts bound from discovering and from seeing all that's here. Holy Spirit, would you impress upon our hearts in these few moments, but more importantly in the week to come, these wonderful truths of who you are, of what you've done, of how you've met us wonderfully in our great need. Come in power, we ask and expect in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Now, the very first thing for us to address is John's vocabulary here. The Word. Right? That seems, if we're honest, a bit clunky, a, a little awkward even. Right? We get right away who John's talking about, right? Spoiler alert, it's Jesus. Okay? We know who he's talking about, but why refer to him as the Word? You may be familiar with, with the Greek word that's used there, logos. Right? We get lots of words like logic from it. Uh, our, our word theology, right? Two Greek words, theos, God, logos, word, right? Theology is a word about God, words about God, right? So logos, and, and I'll just tell you right now, I'm probably going to go back and forth uh, indiscriminately between saying word and logos, okay? What seems unusual to me that John would say the word, that he would say logos, would have been much less unusual. It wouldn't have been clunky or awkward at all for the original hearers and readers of this gospel. If we put them in two broad categories and we say, well, there would have been uh, Hebrews, there would have been Jews who looked at this, and there would have been Greeks or Gentiles who looked at this. The Jews would have been well acquainted with talk about the Word. 
All right? They're obviously going to hear these first three words of verse 3 in the beginning. And where are their minds going? What are they thinking about? They're thinking about creation. They're thinking, hey, that's how Genesis starts. Right? In the beginning, God created. So they're going to be thinking about creation, how God created. How did God create? He said, let there be, and there was. Right? He didn't have to scurry around and gather all the raw materials. He just said, he just spoke, he just uttered words or speech, and stuff got made. It simply came into existence through the power of His Word. So the Hebrew reader is going to read this and think, ooh, creative power, but also effective power. They're probably going to read this and say in the beginning was the Word, and they're going to think about what God said through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And so for the Hebrew reader especially, John will really connect the dots in verse 3 of this passage. They've already got their minds on creation. In the beginning, God created. Well, verse 3 says that it's this Word. He was there in the beginning. And everything that got created, the Word did it. Without exception. If it's something that was made, the Word did it. Other New Testament writers are going to pick up on this. Paul writing to the Colossians. Another glorious, transcendent passage about the Lord Jesus in Colossians 1. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. More on that next week. Also, the author of Hebrews. Right, those first two verses. Look first at the end there. Through whom also he created the world. Right? So we've got it again there, but back up. What came before that? What came before that that helps us understand why John might say in the beginning was the word? Right? Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers. He did so by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He's appointed the heir to all things, through whom also He created the world. God speaking is so important. But if you know Old Testament history you know that there came a time when God stopped speaking. There was a time when God was silent. 400 years. God's people waiting without a word from the Lord. And then 
He broke that silence. And he didn't just break it with a new prophet. He broke that silence with his final perfect word, his son. And we could go on. There are tons of other references that we could look at. But suffice it to say, the Jews definitely would have already had some familiarity with the word when they read this. All right? But the Greeks, the Gentiles, right? Those not familiar with the Old Testament scriptures or her God, they also would have had something with which to hang their, or upon which to hang their hats. The word was also a secular concept. This, this foundational guiding principle of how life works, right? For some, it was reason, right? Uh, just a, an impersonal principle governing the universe. The word, logos. It's how you understood life. It's this principle that you knew you needed to live in harmony with if life was going to be peaceful, if it was going to be successful. And so it seems that John knew that everybody was going to have some way to connect with this. Jew and Gentile alike. When he refers to Jesus as the Word. And so for the Jew, John is taking their concept and expanding upon it, taking it to its fullest fruition in Christ. For, for the Greek, for the Gentile, he's taking their concept and, and kind of refuting it, turning it on its head, saying, yes, Greeks, you've got to live in harmony with the Logos. But the Logos is not a philosophy. It's not an ideology. It's not some impersonal principle. No, Logos is a person. A person who has always existed. He was was with God in the beginning. Right? However you might count backwards and try to identify whatever the beginning was, whatever that point was, the Word was already there. already in existence before the beginning of time as we count it or know it. What else does John say about this person who is the Word? You see it there in verse 1. Two very important things. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Let's take the was God first. The Word was God, John wants you to know Jesus, the Christ, Logos, the Word, is God. He is divine. Now, very few biblical writers do us the favor that John has done for us and explicitly tell you, here's why I'm writing this book. We can usually infer it pretty easily, but man, it's nice to have it wrapped up with the bow on top of it like John does for us in the next to the last chapter of his gospel. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, right? So he's admitting, I've been very selective here, right? I have picked and I've choosed, okay? They're not written in this book, but 
these are written. I picked these ones so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. More on that later. The Son of God and that by believing you may have life in His name. John wants you and me to know in no uncertain terms that the Word, the Christ, the Son of God, is God. Fully divine, eternally existent, not a created being. Not God-like. Not an angel. God. Period. Full stop. And John also wants you to know that the Word was also with God. Now, hopefully, those two things together cause you at least internally to say, huh? Wait a minute. How can you be someone and be with that someone that you are. As you scratch your head on that one, realize that this is one of the many places in Scripture where the doctrine of the, of the Trinity is revealed to us. It, it, it's forced upon us. No one made it up It just happens that when we come across passages like this that either are nonsense, he was someone, and he was also with that someone that he was. So it's either nonsense, or it's some weird contradiction, or they point us to something that must be true despite the fact that we can't wrap our finite minds fully around it. And so all we're left to do is just cling to what we know. And what we know from here is that the Son, the Word, the Christ is Himself divine. He is God. That is His essence. That's the quality of His being. And somehow, He is also with. That, That means He's distinct in some way from the others who share in that divineness, that divinity. And so, and, and this is not a sermon on the Trinity, right? We need, a, we need a series on that sometime, right? This isn't it, but here's as small and tidy and compact as I can make it. We glean from the whole of Scripture, passages just like this and many others, we glean from the whole of Scripture that there are, in fact, three persons who share in divinity. Three distinct persons who are all with each other. They share one divine essence or quality, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, we could grind the gears of our mind on that for eternity, and we would never get it. But here's what I want to do in thinking about the divinity of the Word, the Son, the Christ. Here's the question. 
What's the big deal about the Word being God? Why is that a make it or break it? Why is that a do or die? What's so vitally important about Jesus being divine? Why, when the very nice lady knocks on your door with a copy of the Watchtower magazine in hand, will she argue with you and point to her erroneous mistranslation of God's Word, whose John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Why will she very articulately tell you how Jesus was God's first creation? Oh, definitely the most important of all created beings, but He had a beginning. Like the angels. Why is it such a big deal for us to say Jesus is God? such a big deal because our problem requires a solution that could never be accomplished by a mere mortal, by any created being. See, the Bible teaches that we have rebelled against the Word. We have rebelled against the one who created us. We have chosen our own way. And that rebellion has separated us from him. And ending that separation requires no less than a supernatural miracle. A miracle of the caliber that none other than God himself could work to take on flesh to live righteously for us, to die sacrificially in our place, paying the penalty for our sin and rebellion. And that's not it. Then He has to come and remove our hearts of stone. He has to uncover our blind eyes and unstop our deaf ears just so that we can even see and believe and receive what He has done. That's why it's essential for Jesus to be God, if if all we needed was a teacher to come give us some new information, you don't have to be divine to do that. If all we needed was a good example to show us the way, a good example for us to follow, we wouldn't have to be divine to do that. But we needed far more. See, that's why for the Jehovah's Witnesses, it's no big deal for Jesus to be divine because they don't realize the level of help that's needed that's required. They, they will readily admit, that sweet lady will tell you, yes, Jesus died. Yes, he paid a ransom. And if we carefully obey all that Jehovah has commanded, then what Jesus did will save us. Do you hear what I just said? See, they're not counting on Jesus' divinity. 
They're counting on their own discipline and their own duty. And it's not just Jehovah's Witnesses that can be prone to doing that. Friends, either Jesus is divine, He either is God, or we are dead in our sins. We are doomed. But the truth of the matter is, according to John's Gospel, that Jesus is God. And yet, He didn't consider that divinity something to be grasped and held on to. But he humbled himself and he, he took on flesh that we'll get to later in this prologue. He loved us so much that he was even willing to endure the tearing apart of the withness with God. Now think about that for a minute. The word was with God eternally. There's never been a point when the Son was not with the Father and with the Spirit in perfect communion and fellowship and unity. And in the garden that night as the Lord Jesus sweat drops of blood and prayed to the Father, if there's any way to let this cup pass from me, I'm sure that the cross and the nails were on his mind. I'm sure that the lashes and the scourging. I'm sure that the thorns that would be pressed down into his head were on his mind. But I'm also sure that those things paled in comparison with what was to come when the Trinity for a time would be ripped apart. When the Son would be forsaken by the Father. The tearing apart of this withness that they shared. And yet for you, He did it. He did it. He was separated from the Father so that you and I would never be. Let's pray. Oh God, there is...